Let's pray together again. Father, thank you for this morning. And uh, Jesus, you are the one that we adore, the one that we come to worship. And so it gives us just joy to lift up your name, to make much of you together. Uh, that's what this season ha has been about, Lord, your birth, that you came to us to save us. And so, Lord, now as we turn to your word, uh, would you teach us and uh, shape us and convict us by your spirit? We come with open hearts, Lord. Would you have your way here this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to uh, Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Once again, just one more Merry Christmas to you. We hope that uh, your day yesterday was just full of joy and special time with family and friends. And we glad, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you were with us as well on Christmas Eve, that's two church services in three days, right? So here we go. We are feeling good. and Yes, right. It's good to, to be together. Um, with the celebration of Christmas, we just wrapped up the season known as Advent, right? We've been talking about Advent every week. It's a word that means coming or arrival. Advent is a season where for about four Sundays we uh, look to, uh, yes, the first coming of Christ, but also we look forward to the return of Christ. And so for the church, it's this season of uh, longing and anticipation and looking forward to Jesus who will come and redeem things and make all things new. And we've used these candles, right, uh, every week, adding one candle each week to recognize our, again, growing and building anticipation for the arrival of Jesus. And now they're all lit, and so we celebrate that Christ has come. Maybe uh, in your home you had an Advent, anyone have an Advent calendar? Yeah, one, like one of those with those really undersized, thin chocolates that you get each day, like way too small chocolates to kind of mark the days. Okay, so we, we know Advent, um, but we often don't pay a lot of attention to what comes after Advent on the church calendar. See, historically, there's a thing called the church calendar where generations of Christians over the years and centuries have observed uh, these different seasons of the year and use them as reminders about the gospel and the Christian message and what the scriptures teach. And on that church calendar, after the season of Advent, comes the season of Epiphany, which we, I don't think in my time here, we've ever really talked about the season of of epiphany. Epiphany is a word that means uh, to show or to make known or to reveal. And so epiphany is this season on the church calendar that focuses not only on Jesus coming to us, his arrival, but his person. Who is he? Who has he been shown and revealed to be? So it's this season where the church remembers not only the incarnation, but who was this child born in the manger? We remember as a church family, he was and is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God himself come to us to save us. And so Epiphany is the season. It doesn't actually officially start until I think the first week of January. But we're getting ahead of it a little bit and going to talk about it this morning. And we're not going to observe it the same way we do Advent with, with candles and, and readings and things like that every week. We just wanted to make you aware that that's kind of the, the season the church is entering into. And one of the traditional passages of Scripture that is looked at this time of year is uh, Matthew chapter 2. And the visit of the Magi to bring gifts to young, 
Jesus. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. I want to dig into that text and just see what there is for us there. Let's read it shortly here. Matthew 2, the first few verses. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So a word of introduction here, right? We, we have this story, these true events about wise men, magi from the east coming to visit Jesus after his birth. Now, we don't know exactly how long after his birth this took place. Uh, likely it wasn't the night he was born, okay? This was likely uh, several days and months later. But as we read this story, what I want us to ask and consider is, okay, what is this text telling us about Jesus? Right, what is this passage trying to reveal to us about who Jesus is? Obviously, there's some interesting characters in the story. We have the uh, King Herod, we have the Magi, and those guys, you know, get thrown into songs, and we remember them fondly in different ways. But I really want us to look at, again, what do these verses tell us about Jesus? Let's start with a few of the, the characters in the story here. I use characters, again, these are True events, true story, but who are the people we read about? First, verse 1 tells us about someone very important. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. So the first person we hear about in Matthew chapter 2 is, of course, Jesus. And we have to ask, well, who is Jesus? And who is uh, the gospel of Matthew portraying Jesus to be and telling us that he is? Well, Jesus, at the end of chapter 1, was labeled the Messiah. The, uh, the Christ, the anointed one. Okay, so this long-awaited figure from the Old Testament, the Messiah, he has come. That is who Jesus is. If you look at Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, Jesus is told to be the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. Jesus is Emmanuel. Verse chapter 2 here mentions Jesus as the King of the Jews. Okay, so we have these huge, lofty, big claims about Jesus to start. But Jesus isn't the only king mentioned in the passage, is he? Right, look again at the text. There's another king. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, verse 1 says, During the time of King Herod. So we have Herod, this king, this acting ruler of Israel at the time. And what we know about Herod from history is that he was paranoid. He was always feeling threatened about his power being taken away from him. He was known even to kill some of his own family members because they were a threat to the throne. He was extremely efficient and uh, you know, he was a builder and industrious and key in infrastructure and accomplished a lot in his reign in a number of different ways, but he just wasn't a great guy, okay? If you went to our journey to Bethlehem, uh, Ron Garcia was our King Herod. If you were at our kids' choir performance, Justice Lopez, of course, was our King Herod. Great job. I don't understand if Justice is here, but good job to you there. And that was really fitting, right? Because those are both really shady people in our church that we're not sure about. And so the role was a good fit. Just kidding, we love those two. Um, but Herod uh, was not a good dude. So we have Jesus, and we have King Herod, two kings. Then the text goes on. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So we have the Magi, the third group in the story. Sometimes they're called the wise men. You heard them referred to this way. Uh, The proper term is Magi. They were really uh, pagan astrologers from the east. We don't actually know how many of them there were. Again, typically we remember them being, there being three of them. It's kind of how tradition goes uh, because three gifts were given. So we're like, maybe there were three, but we really don't know how many. Maybe there were, there's more than one. There's plural, but um, maybe there was 10, 20, 50. I don't know. We, we don't really know. But so these, these pagan, likely wealthy, likely influential figures from far off land in the East arrive. But think about this from a, a Jewish perspective. Okay, by Jewish standards, these guys were, were questionable. They were, they were foolish. Okay, they, were, they were Gentiles. Not only were they Gentiles, but they're involved in you know, some form of divination and astrology and stargazing, kind of pagan ritual sort of stuff. So in the Jewish mind, there's going to be all sorts of red flags going up as they enter the story. These aren't, you know, you're, you're good boys and girls who are going to the soup kitchen and, and serving the homeless in their free time, okay? They're involved in, in sorcery and like who knows what else, okay? In light of that fact, it's pretty interesting then what we read in verse 2, like what, what happens when these guys arrive or why they came to Jerusalem in the first place. Right? They came and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Again, isn't that interesting? It doesn't seem like the math adds up there. We have these pagan Gentiles from a far off land, uh, astrologers, and they've come traveling likely a long distance, spending probably a good amount of money and time. And they're here to worship Jesus. These Gentiles, people who in the Jewish mind were far from God. They show up and they want to worship the king of the Jews. They want to worship Jesus. Now, so the stage is set. Okay, we have the, the key players in the story. Look what happens. Things get tense. Look how the text continues. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Hmm. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. All right, so there's some tension in the story here, right? Notice how it develops. Herod hears about these wise men from the east, the Magi, coming to worship this new king. And the text tells us that he's troubled. He's disturbed. Now think about that. Why would he be troubled? Why would he be disturbed based on what we know of Herod? Because he wants to be the king. He doesn't want a threat. He doesn't want a rival to his throne. And so he hears, hey, there's this other king and we want to go and worship him. And Herod doesn't like that. 
I mean, he's even willing to kill members of his own family. So he's probably willing to come at this new king as well. So Herod then in verse 4 calls everybody together, scribes, chief priests. He wants to know, hey, this, this new king that has been born, where was he supposed to be born? And the scribes and priests are on it. They know their Old Testament. They know the prophecy about Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, a small town about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. Not large, not fancy, but it's in Bethlehem. Then you see the plot thickens here. Look again, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Go, search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And then they go. Look at this. Herod pulls the Magi aside. Says, hey, I'd love to worship this newborn king too. I'm going to send you guys to do my bidding. Why don't you guys go find out where he is, come, you know, affirm that, and then come and tell me so that I can go as well. But think about that. Based on what we know of Herod, are these likely his true intentions? Probably not, right? We don't really trust this guy. So what would the original readers hearing about this, knowing Herod, hearing this, what would they think of Herod's purpose? I mean, at best, this is, you know, fishy and suspicious, and we don't, can't exactly put our finger on what Herod's going to do, but we probably think it's not very good, and so it makes us uncomfortable. I mean, what's Herod up to? You notice how this is such a good story? What? I mean, a true story, but it's such a, a well-crafted, good story because now what do we have? We have these well-intentioned magi, Gentiles from a far-off land who want to come and worship Jesus are being sent to go along with King Herod's devious plot and scheme and plan to harm Jesus, and they don't even know it. So he sends them along. They might be helping Herod find and kill Jesus, Without even knowing, I mean, if this was a movie, again, the drama is building. We would all be on the edge of our seats, like locked in. How is this going to unfold? What's going to happen? So look what happens next. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They find Jesus, and there's this powerful moment of, of worship where these Gentiles, people who are far from God, these pagan astrologers are led to the place where Jesus is. And when they see it, it says they rejoiced. Look at the language used. I think the NIV says they were overjoyed, but that's a little mild. More literally, the text says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they were really happy about this, Okay. They're rejoicing that they found this Jesus. They're pumped that they were able to worship him and they bow down and they bring these gifts, these treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Did anyone get gold or frankincense and myrrh for Christmas? No? Good, because those are gifts that are meant for a king, for a divine king, really. These are gifts that symbolize royalty and even divinity. I mean, these are, these are really special, costly gifts. This is the big moment here in the text. But the tension still remains, right? What about Herod and Herod's plan? Are they going to go along with it? Are they going to realize what's going on? Verse 12. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So through a dream, the Magi are warned, told that Herod was up to no good. Clearly something bad would happen if they returned to him. And so our suspicions are confirmed. They leave after they worship Jesus. And in the following passages, we see that Herod's true colors are shown. He catches word of this. He gets angry. Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt with the young Jesus because Herod goes and searches out for him and kills children throughout the region. His violent true colors show. This is a captivating story. And there's a lot for us to consider this morning in terms of what to take away. Again, think about Epiphany, this season of revealing. What is this showing us, telling us, revealing to us about who this Jesus is? The text tells us this by way of contrast. There's a couple big contrasts in the passage that are meant to point out to us the takeaway. Oftentimes you'll read the Bible and they'll have these these people that are opposites put right next to each other and it helps highlight for us what the text wants us to see. So did you notice some of the main contrasts in the passage? Think about it. What were the opposites in the text? There were two big ones. First, Jesus and Herod. Both identified as kings, but think about what Matthew has told us of these two in the story. Herod is a king, yes, but he's, he's troubled, he's afraid, he's deceitful, he's grasping at power, trying to hold on to it. And yes, he's in the city of Jerusalem, the place where the king should be, but he's trying to, to desperately protect and preserve his own power and his own plans with his own strength. But again, he's, he's ambitious, he's strong. Right? He's, he's, he's an adult grown man. Contrast that, all of that, with Jesus. And Jesus is in Bethlehem, not the place for a king. And Jesus is vulnerable. He's just a child, unlike Herod. But Jesus is the one who receives praise and worship, royal gifts, the one who is bowed down to by these visitors. And so Matthew, in pointing that out for us, is trying to tell us that Jesus is the true king. He's the one who deserves our worship. He's the one who is to be lifted up and praised. And so Herod is this false king trying to to fight and claw to keep his power, but he can't. And so Matthew is showing us ultimately that, that any sort of earthly king will fall short. Jesus is the true king, the one who is worthy of our worship. Now, in the ancient mind, when when someone would think about a king, there were were two things that would come to mind. First is a king is someone that you obey, and a king is someone that you set your hope in. Again, a king is someone you obey, and someone that you put your hope in. And so for us, let's think about those, those things. Who do we obey? This is the one that's a little more natural to us, right? We get that. Okay, a king is someone who's in charge. They set the rules. You know, they decide how things happen. They rule in their kingdom. Kings are in charge, and so we should obey the king. And so today, think about this. We often emphasize that Jesus is 
he's humble and he's accessible and he has open arms and he's near to us and he's our friend. And, and those things are all true. Those things are all true. But at the same time, the text also shows us that Jesus is the king, one who is worthy of awe and reverence and worship. And so as we approach Jesus and his word, we don't take his word simply as, as suggestions. You know, or just, yeah, here's, here's some good ideas, take it or leave it. We approach them as, as words from the king. He's worthy of our, our worship, our devotion as these magi bring gifts of honor. He deserves that sort of devotion from our lives. So a king is the one you obey, but also the king is the one that you set your hope in. See, in the ancient world, uh, your quality of life often had a lot to do with who was on the throne, right? A good king would bring peace in the land, flourishing and prosperity for their people, protection from enemies. A good king would lead to a good flourishing kingdom. And so where do we look for our hope and flourishing and protection and joy? Right? If a king is the one that we set our hope in, where do we look for those things? What do we look to that we expect to bring us peace and flourishing and joy? Often we don't look to the Lord or to Jesus, our king. We instead look to ourselves or to money or sex or possessions or power or influence, or affection, or family, or in other relationships, or entertainment, or comfort. Many things that aren't necessarily bad in themselves. But idolatry is when we take good things and make them ultimate things. We take good gifts that God has given and we place them at the top and say, I have to have this thing in order to be okay. Or this thing, or this person, or this situation, or this outcome is what I desperately need to be okay. So rather than setting my hope in Jesus, I'm going to set my hope in these things. My my guess is as I'm sharing this, maybe there's some things coming to mind for you that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind in your life, what that could look like, the realities in your own heart. But sometimes we have trouble seeing our idols and seeing the things that we put in front of God. One of the ways that we can kind of start to dig into our hearts a little bit is by asking good questions. Right? Reflecting long enough, hopefully with maybe a strong cup of coffee, and sitting there and saying, okay, Lord, help me see. And often one of the questions we can ask, or some of the questions that we need to ask, have to do with our emotions. Our emotions can tell us a lot about what's going on in our hearts. So, so we could ask you know, what are the things that make me really angry or anxious? You know, what in my life, if I uh, feel that it's threatened or that I'm going to lose it or I'm not going to have it, it makes me really anxious or angry or I want to fight over it? What are the things that I feel like I have to have to be okay? What are the things that I, I daydream about having, receiving, enjoying? What are the things that I worry about losing? What gets me worked up? What gets a strong reaction out of me? Often those are the sorts of things that could indicate 
deeper things going on in our hearts that we're trusting in. So we have Jesus and Herod and the reminder that Jesus is the true king. But there's another big contrast in the text. The second big contrast. Did you notice it? I'm sure you did. We have this contrast between the Magi, Gentiles from the East, and we have Herod and the Jews. So we have the Magi over here, and we have Herod and the Jews over here. Think about it. We see that the Jews and Herod are afraid about the coming of the Messiah. They don't get it, right? It says Herod and all of Jerusalem were afraid, troubled. We see the scribes and the chief priests not going to worship Jesus themselves, but helping Herod find Jesus in order to harm him. And so some of these things aren't adding up, right? Jesus' own people, the scribes and the priests and the king in Jerusalem are not going to worship him. Instead, who do we have going to worship Jesus? We have the Magi, the Gentiles, those who were far off, those who were uh, least likely in the story to be the ones worshiping Jesus. And yet they are the ones who go and get excited about finding Jesus and worshiping him. They're the ones who bring extravagant gifts. They're the ones who bow down and worship. They're the ones who are eager and open to what God is doing. Now, their worship may be ignorant, right? They might not know all the details about who exactly this Jesus is or exactly what God is up to, but they're excited about it. And they're being obedient to the best of their ability and knowledge in the situation. And they're the ones who respond positively to what God is doing. And so, in this first contrast, we see what Matthew is telling us about Jesus. Jesus is the king. Then what is this second contrast with the Magi intended to show us? It shows us that Jesus came to save the world. Right, those who are near and those who are far. So the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, notice, is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the in crowd or the people that you would expect it to be for. The good people. It's for everyone. Right, God is showing us through the magic that no one is beyond the reach of Christ. No one is too far gone, too distant, has sinned too much, strayed too far. And this is so interesting too, because the gospel of Matthew, if you study the gospels and look at them kind of in comparison to one another, often the gospel of Matthew is known as being the most uh, Jewish of all the gospels. The one that has uh, probably more Old Testament references than the rest. A lot of Old Testament symbolism and a lot of prophecies explained and a lot of things that like ancient Jews would understand. That's the Gospel of Matthew. A lot of people see it written from a strongly Jewish perspective, using Jewish terms. And yet we see that this powerful chapter 2 message is that it's not just for the Jews. The Gospel goes beyond the Jews. God is showing us that there is hope for the world, and His heart is for the world, for all people. So friends, this morning we remember that no one is beyond the reach of God because 
What does the gospel tell us? That, that Jesus came and he went to the cross to die for our sins. And so the way of salvation is through faith in Jesus because of the mercy and grace of God, not through our own merits and work and earning it. And so then, the, as they say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come with empty hands. We all have sinned. We all need a Savior, Jew and Gentile, uh, churchgoer or, you know, pagan neighbor down the street, whatever. We all need the gospel and the work of Christ. So even if, like the Magi, they seem so far off and lost, God can weave them into his story. And so, friends, a couple applications for this. Maybe, again, maybe you're here this morning and you feel like that's you. You can identify with the Magi, those who are far off. Those who maybe, you know, feel a little out of place in the story. Right? They're not the ones we would really expect to be here, and yet they're here, and they're the ones who, who get it. So maybe the, the, the word for you, the reminder for you this morning is that this is for you. The message of the gospel is for you. No matter how far you've strayed or, or big you feel like your sin is or how dark your past is or whatever it might be, there is grace for you because of the work of Jesus. Would you come and trust in him? And then it's a reminder also for us who, who feel like in, insiders, right, who are walking with Jesus, churchgoers, we've trusted in Christ. It's a reminder for us to look a little bit differently at the people on the outside and the people that we think maybe are, are too far gone or the people who sin differently than we do or the people that we're maybe a little bit quick to judge or the people that are maybe hard for us to love sometimes. It's a reminder that God often will flip things upside down and we'll be surprised at the people that come to him. Sometimes the math doesn't add up, right? In our own human understanding, we, we completely limit God and the power of the gospel in our own minds. Rather than remembering how truly transformative the gospel is. So this is a reminder to stay open and prayerful about people in your life, about people in your neighborhood, people in your family, about how God is at work and might absolutely surprise you with how he transforms their hearts. Because if he, if he can save you, he can save them. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you like those magi from the East who came bearing gifts. We want to bring just our hearts to you, our devotion, our worship. Jesus, you are the king that we bow down to. You are the king that we set our hope in. Lord Jesus, as we end this year again, we want to do it just with, with hearts of worship, looking to you. And Lord, I pray that you'd have your way here in our hearts and in our church Help us to be a people that uh, turns from idols and false kings and false gods and things that we put our trust in other than you. Help us trust in you and you alone. And Lord Jesus, would you surprise us this year? Would you surprise us at, at the power of the gospel and the way you transform lives and draw people to yourself? Thank you for your amazing grace that you saved even people like us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.